Uh, so 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. We're going to read that whole passage for the sake of context, and we're going to mainly look at the first half this week and follow up with the uh, latter part of the chapter, latter part of this passage uh, next week or the week after. Uh, but give ear to the reading of God's word this morning. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly uh, with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This ends the reading of God's of God's word. Well, truth be told, I had originally planned uh, on preaching through that entire text. And uh, the more I started writing, the more I realized if I were to spend enough time on the latter half of this passage, I would be neglecting the former half, the first few verses, and I didn't want to do either one of those things. I didn't want to rush through any of it, and I figured that uh, this is all there for a reason. And so we're going to spend our time this morning mostly on the first few verses of this. And as I said, we will get to the next part uh, next Sunday or the Sunday after. We usually do a psalm on the first Sunday of the month, and next Sunday is the first Sunday in July. So we will get to the more, uh, maybe more controversial section of this passage uh, in due time, and I'm actually looking forward to that. But uh, anyway, both of these parts of this passage, all these verses, verses 8 through 15, uh, they they have a tendency, I think, in some ways, both both sections, I think, uh, have a tendency among some to be found to be offensive, for different reasons, uh, the word of God is not offensive, but if, if we find it offensive, I think the problem is not with the scriptures, it's with us. Now, the first half of this section, verses 8 through 10, maybe as I was reading that, you kind of shrugged your shoulders and thought, well, you know, no, no big deal. These things are uh, talking about how men behave towards each other and how that relates to prayer. Uh, how women are to dress themselves modestly and with, with modestly rather, and with uh, respectable apparel. Uh, these things might seem to us to be rather mundane, not the big the big things that we usually uh, pick fights over and whatnot. And in the latter half of that, as far as who is to teach and how we are to learn and whatnot, uh, differing regarding to men and women, now those are probably the things that we uh, tend to fight over more and disagree over. But uh, those things may be the more uh, offensive to some. But in some ways, remember we keep looking at First Timothy chapter three. When Paul says in verses uh, 14 to 15, it, it's always good to keep this in mind. He says uh, to Timothy, the reason he wrote the letter, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so my, my point of bringing that up once again is just to remind us that as mundane as how we relate to one another as men, as mundane as is uh, how how we dress ourselves in the house of God on Sunday mornings. As mundane as that seems to be, and as as uh, much of a minefield in some ways in our day as the latter part of that text may seem to be, 
for different reasons, we might be tempted as a church, you might be tempted as a church member or an elder or a deacon, I might be, be tempted as a pastor to either avoid these kinds of texts uh, or to soft-pedal them or to explain them away, not to deal with them very very straightforwardly. Uh, we really can't do that. Um, as much as someone might get offended at the topic of modesty and dress or, or who should and shouldn't be teaching in the church, even those things, whether the, mon- the mundane aspect or the more controversial, so to speak, part of that passage, both of those things have to do with order in the church, the proper God-ordained order in the church. Both of those things have to do with how one is to behave and conduct ourselves in the household of God, in the family of God, in the church of the living God, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so we should, we should be careful not to neglect these things, not to, sh- to set them aside, not to disregard them, not to take them lightly. Think about how short this letter is. Think about First Timothy. You know, we think of the pastoral epistles. They're not very long. First uh, Timothy is six chapters long, and you can read the whole thing in in one sitting easily without uh, having to take a break. Paul doesn't spell out every little thing about how the church is to conduct itself, conduct ourselves, but the fact that he includes these things should make us sit up and take notice. And these same things that, that Paul talks about in our passage this morning were just as important and relevant in the first century, 2,000 years ago almost now, as they are now. And the reason for that is despite all the changes in, in society, all the different uh, technological advances and whatnot, people are still the same. We might have uh, many conveniences that Paul never could have dreamed of in our day, the Internet. Uh, we can meet this way when we can't meet in person, our cars, all kinds of things. Or having a computer at your, at your grasp, at, at the fingertips with your cell phones, your smartphones. Um, but as a, as a whole, people actually don't change. We are still sinners, Every single one of us, we're still made in the image of God, but we're still, if we're outside of Christ, our main problem is our sin and the guilt of our sin and the condemnation for that sin before a holy God. Our need is for the Savior, Jesus Christ, and for the new birth that God might uh, save us from our sin and change us, both justify us and sanctify us and fit us for eternity in heaven with him. Now, that's the same thing that applies to every human being that has ever been born or that ever will be born in the future, and so those things don't change. In a lot of ways, uh, the outward trappings of church may change to some degree, but the essence of what the church is to be and how we are to conduct ourselves does not change. And so, Paul, Paul, in our text this morning, in the whole thing, but we're going to even just in the part we're looking at in verses eight through mainly eight through ten, uh, has to do with order in God's church, how God would have us to conduct ourselves. In the first part of our passage this morning. In verse 8, the the men get the short part in this passage, and they'll get the longer part in chapter 3. So if you think our text is uh, unnecessarily unbalanced uh, at the end of this chapter, don't worry. The guys have it coming in chapter 3 more more so. But the first thing that Paul points our attention to is order in the church as regards the men of the church. Uh, Paul's concern in this epistle, as we've just read from chapter 3, is is for godly order in the churches— and so that is something to keep in mind as we look at these things in our text this morning. Uh, in verses 1 through 7, we looked at those uh, last time, the last two Sundays, really. Uh, Paul, Paul dealt with the subject of prayer in public worship. He dealt with emphasizing the importance of prayer in public worship. And you can see in verse 8 here in our text, he's still talking about that same that same topic, look at verse 8 again. He says, uh, I desire then that in every place the men should pray 
lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So remember, it's important to keep in, the, in mind the context of these verses that we're looking at in the whole letter, really, uh, but especially here in chapter 2, the context is public worship. That is why he mentions, maybe you thought it sounded strange when Paul says, uh, you know, I desire that in every place, every place where the church meets, right, that the men should pray. He's not saying the women should not pray. He's not saying that children should not pray. That's nowhere near the point. He's talking about public worship, and he's probably focusing mainly on those who lead up front in, in prayer. There's no uh, prohibition for women against women praying in our meetings and whatnot. But in public worship uh, in particular, he's talking about those who lead in prayer, which are the men there. Now, notice the qualification that Paul makes uh, here about about prayer in public worship. The men are to pray and lead in prayer and worship, but how are they to do so? It's one thing to say, pray for all men, pray for kings and all who are in, thor- in authority, but he, he reminds us of something very important about our prayer life, both as individuals and especially as a church. He says we are to pray, what? Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And so one of the things we must uh, learn and be reminded of in this passage is uh, the way that we live affects our prayers. Again, this goes for our, ourselves as individuals. It goes for uh, churches in general. How we live affects, for good or for bad, our prayers. You know, we might lift up our hands in prayer. You know, it's a it's been a common practice throughout the history of the church to lift up our hands in prayer. Now, that might not uh, probably be as common among us Presbyterians, who are often called the frozen chosen. Uh, we may not lift our hands up, but we should not be ashamed to do so. When we're praying in public, we should not be ashamed to lift up our hands and pray to God. Uh, you know, if, if uh, we always tell the kids at the dinner table to close your eyes and bow your heads, nobody's going to see you anyway, but God sees. But it's fine, but we should be watchful and, and mindful of how we live. If we're going to lift up hands to God in prayer, uh, in our posture, our hands, those hands must be, metaphorically so to speak, clean or holy. If we are living lives of unholiness or uncleanness, it's going to hinder our prayers. You know, the, our fathers in the faith years ago used to talk about our sins making the heavens appear as brass. And what that means is you know, your prayers can't get through. That's kind of the picture being painted there. And so sometimes the way that we live... You ever have you ever have a time in your life when you're praying and you just feel like God's not answering? Well, sometimes, and you'll know if this is the case, sometimes it's because of unholy living and unrepented of sin. Listen to the words of Isaiah chapter 1. You know, if you want to read a chapter, it's one of the most convicting chapters in the entire scriptures. The entire Bible is Isaiah chapter 1, where God basically tells the people of Judah, you know, all of your worship, all of your sacrifices, all of your prayers, I'm not, I'm not having it. Uh, he, he says he was weary of it because they weren't living in a way that pleased the Lord. Listen to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, where he rebukes his people for their wickedness in mixing, he calls in verse 13, mixing iniquity and solemn assembly. They weren't neglecting solemn assembly and worship, but they were trying to live however they want and still come to church, so to speak. Verse 15 of Isaiah 1, God says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Why was God not listening? Why did God hide his eyes from them? Uh, he says, because your, their hands were full of blood. Now, were they, were the people of Judah literally guilty of uh, the outward act of murder and violence? Um, I, I don't know if that's the case. I don't, I don't suspect that was the main issue. Uh, but they were engaging in unrepentant sin 
and wickedness. They were, they were engaging in idolatry in many ways. Isaiah rebukes them for idolatry throughout, throughout the, the book, as do many of the Old Testament prophets. And so if we are engaging, the lesson for us today, as, as it is always, if we as believers are engaging in unrepentant sin, you know, known sins that we are just going on and on and not repenting of them, uh, God, God will hide his eyes from us. He will not listen to our prayers. That doesn't mean that God doesn't know what we're saying, uh, but he is not attentive to our prayers when we are living in unrepentance and disobedience openly. Uh, and we need to repent. The people of Judah, you might know, in Isaiah's day, uh, were, were living lives uh, full of, not all of them, but by, by and large, lives of iniquity and, and idolatry. And if you know the history of the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, what God's just judgment was on its way because of that, and that took the form of the Babylonian captivity. And yet despite their hardness of heart, despite their unrepentance, uh, you know, you might think to yourself, people who are, you know, living a life of unrepentant sin, well, they just won't come to church. And that's, that's true in many ways for those who don't profess Christ. But many, there are many people who are living lives of unrepentant sin that think nothing apparently of, of going to church just like nothing was out of the ordinary. And that's not a new thing. That's, that's what was happening in Isaiah's day as well. They were still coming to the temple. You know, in a lot of ways, you could say that the prophets rebuked the people for treating, they didn't use this phrase, but they were treating the temple kind of like a lucky rabbit's foot. Kind of like if you ever played, uh, nobody plays board games these days, but if you're old enough like me and you've played Monopoly, we've tried it a few times with the kids. Remember the little cards? There was a get out of jail free card. If you got landed in jail and got that card, you could use it to get out. We, we They thought of the temple and their worshiping in the temple and offering their sacrifices as a proverbial get out of jail free card, as their free pass as their uh, lucky rabbit's foot, and God rebuked them for it. In other words, they were coming to the temple, they were lifting up and offering the required sacrifices which God had ordained, they were spreading out their hands in prayer, and according to Isaiah 115, the implication is that they might have even been offering up many prayers. God, you know, God is telling them, even if you make many prayers, I will not listen. It wasn't for a lack of praying that they weren't being being heard. And so multiplying their prayers, you know, Jesus mentions that in Matthew chapter six. That you know, we shouldn't think like the pagans who think by their multipl- multiplying of words that God will be heard. They were, in some ways, acting like pagans when they should have been acting like believers in the one true and living God. Now, those those people in Judah at, at the temple were offering sacrifices which God had ordained. They were worshiping. They were praying. They were they were coming to solemn assembly. But did God listen to their prayers? Did He? Was he pleased by their by their public worship? And the answer to that, God tells them right in chapter 1 of Isaiah, is an emphatic no. Not all worship is pleasing to God. Now, this doesn't mean, we should not take this to mean, that, that we can somehow earn answers to our prayers, that we can somehow merit God's, God's yes to our prayers. That's not the point at all. Uh, the point is not that we can earn answers by our holy, holiness or good works, uh, in fact, if you and I really believe that we could be heard and answered by God on the basis of our good works, I don't think I would ever pray. I, I doubt you would pray because we, we're never holy enough. Uh, we are never holy enough to answer, to, to merit God's answer. We are never, we never do enough good works on our best day to earn God's answers. It's just not how, how it works. But what God does require is 
sincerity, a sincere, although imperfect, holiness of life. That is the mark of a Christian, not perfection. Uh, sin itself is not hypocrisy, but God, God does not is not pleased by hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is professing one thing and living an entirely different thing. Uh, hypocrisy is professing to be a believer in Christ and living in an unrepentant sin. Uh, you know, First Corinthians chapter six, Paul says, uh, "You know, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God." And he lists a whole bunch of different sins. He's telling the people in the church, if this is how you're living, if these things, and there, there are all kinds of things, things from drunkenness to sexual immorality to all kinds of things, to swindling, to stealing, uh, like all those things, if that's your lifestyle, if that is how you live, it is a contradiction of your profession of faith. Holiness, imperfect as it is, uh, sanctification, sincerity in that is the life, the mark of the life of a Christian and it must be, uh, it's a must for us to be able to approach the throne of grace. God's throne of grace is just that, a throne of grace. We don't earn his answers to prayer. We don't earn his good gifts uh, when we come to our Heavenly Father. But we cannot mix iniquity and solemn assembly. You know, in a similar way, the New Testament, not just in, in what we're looking at in First Timothy, but in uh, the book of First Peter, chapter 3, the Apostle, uh, Apostle Peter actually tells us, that the way that husbands and wives treat each other affects our prayers as well. And he singles out the husbands. First Peter 3, verse 7, he says this, Likewise, husbands, and when he says likewise, it means the previous verses, he talked about the wives already, but he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And what does he add at the very end? so that your prayers may not be hindered. Think about that. Husbands out there, myself and, and all of you men out there who are husbands, God, you can hinder your prayers by the way you treat your wife. That is something to be uh, thought very much of. And, and he talks about, uh, what does he say? Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. You imagine many men uh, did not honor and do not honor their wives. It says, as the weaker vessel, they might think, well, she's the weaker vessel. You know, whatever. And he says, no, honor them. And he gives the re- two reasons, one positive, one negative. One, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. They're just as saved as you are if they're in Christ. And God loves them and is pleased with them uh, just as much as you. And says, and by the way, if you don't, your prayers will be hindered. Our prayers are affected by how we live. And so let us as believers be careful to search our hearts and see if there be any sins that we need to uh, sincerely repent of that our prayers might not be hindered, both our own private prayers as well as our prayers uh, in the house of God on the Lord's day. Now, verse 8 of our text, Paul also adds something beyond holy hands. He says we're to pray lifting holy hands. And then he says without anger or quarreling. Now, that may sound strange to your ears when you were reading that. Maybe you thought, you know, what kind of prayer meetings does this church have? You know, were, were people uh, yelling and, and hollering and, and showing anger in the midst of their prayers? I don't think that's what Paul is, is in any way saying. I think he's talking about the way that we relate to each other in the church affects, again, our public prayers in the, on the Lord's Day. And so, you know, one of the things that Paul does here, and I think this is one of the things in our day that might offend people most of all without us even realizing it, is that, Paul deals with us, and the scripture is honest this way, according to the kinds of sins and temptations that we 
as men, as women, as children and whatnot, tend to be uh, tempted by, by nature. Our natures are different uh, in some ways. And one of the things about men, not that women can't be, uh, you know, can't be guilty of the same thing, but men, by nature in some ways, can tend towards anger and quarreling. That word anger literally means wrath. In anger and quarreling in our dealings with, with each other. And so it's no accident that in the very next chapter, you know, that, that don't think of 1 Timothy as these segments, you know, divided by the chapters with totally different subjects. In chapter 3, when Paul starts talking about the, the qualifications for, for elders in the church, one of those qualifications he brings up, he says in verse 3 of chapter 3, is that he must not be what? Not violent, but gentle. And here's the word again, not quarrelsome. Not quarrelsome. He does not want the men of the church to be quarrelsome. He certainly does not want the elders of his church, of God's church, to be quarrelsome. And so you could say that, you know, in addition to hindering our prayers, uh, if we are not lifting up holy hands in prayer and we are full of wrath and quarreling, uh, as as someone who wants to be or maybe is aspiring to be an elder, which is a good thing, uh, if you're an, if you're wanting to be an elder and you're always looking for a fight, so to speak, you probably shouldn't be an elder yet. You know, in, in our day, the opposite, or not the opposite, but in a, in a different way, you shouldn't be looking for a fight, and you shouldn't also be running from a fight. There are things within the church that God's shepherds, his under-shepherds, his elders, his pastors, sometimes you must be willing to fight the good fight. Paul says that in this in this book, in First Timothy, in the pastoral epistles, fight the good fight of faith, defend the faith from false teaching, but we should not be pugnacious. We should not be always on the lookout for a fight and looking for any excuse to get in one verbally or certainly otherwise. Well, that brings us to the second point this morning. Our second point is order in the church, not just for men, but for women as well. And that's in verses 9 through the end of the chapter. Well, we're going to focus on verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11. Now, he has a lot to say in these short uh, verses about the women of the church. In verses 9 through through 11, he starts off by pointing out, just like he did for the men, some of the particular temptations that many women are subject to, again, by nature as well. Uh, you know, men and women, in case you didn't know this, are in a lot of ways very different. And the scripture is very honest about that. Look at verses 9 through 10 again. He says, likewise also, so he says he dealt with the men. Now he says, likewise also, uh, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, before we go on, this is not to say that there aren't some men who spend a little bit too much time in front of a mirror. What Paul, I think, is getting at here is that it's not a particularly or naturally a masculine tendency or temptation. He, you know, very often the scripture makes speaks in generalities, and that doesn't mean that the, there aren't exceptions to the rule, so to speak, but Paul deals with people as most of us tend to be, not as we might want to think of ourselves as. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's safe to say, I think, I think it's still safe to say that, um, you know, we often find it, many of us, I know I do, many of us find it, often find it a little bit odd when you get the impression that a man spends a little bit too much time uh, worrying about his appearance. 
And when you get the impression that a man spends a little too much time in front of the mirror, uh, we often find that odd. And I think that's because by nature it's not normally the case. You know, in, in nature itself, I know we often say, when we think about animals and whatnot, it's oddly enough the males that seem to be the like the peacocks, the males are the ones with the uh, brighter colors and all that. Uh, but in, in human nature, it tends to not be quite the same way. So, ladies, I asked you this morning, you know, how often do you find yourselves uh, having to make sure your husbands look presentable before he heads out the door? You know, sometimes it can seem like us men, uh, you know, we have mirrors in our house, but sometimes it, it can seem like the men of the church uh, have trouble locating one before <laughs> before we show up. Uh, and I think that's what Paul is, is, uh, is dealing with here a little bit. Now, Paul... Paul here is broaching a potentially dangerous topic if you think about it in some ways, but this is a necessary one. Uh, nonetheless, he says that some of the women of the church, what does he say of them? He says the women of the church should adorn themselves in respectable attire with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly attire. Now, if you think I'm being a little facetious here, um, if you are not on social media, do not... Do not go there. Uh, but uh, if you're on social media sometime as a as an experiment, um, just make a comment somewhere or post something about the necessity of modesty in in uh, ladies' attire, and you will probably be shocked at how often, how how like violently verbally anyway, that you might even find yourself being taken to task and attacked for it. It's strange that people react so strongly against something that should be such common common sense. Now, when Paul says respectable apparel, notice he doesn't give us a dictionary definition. He doesn't say, here's what you should wear, ladies. That's not his point. He, he expects us to have some idea of what he's talking about. When he says respectable apparel, that word that's translated as respectable has the idea of something that is well-ordered or suitable or fitting uh, for for the person. Now, we get the word cosmos or cosmetics from this same word you know the, the old joke is you know what are, what are cosmetics uh, according to the greek it's to bring order out of chaos that's not that's not really the uh, the right way to look at it but um, but you get the idea that he's saying this is what is fitting not what fits physically your your frame it's it's what what's fitting according to your nature as as a woman and then what does he add to to explain what he means by what is respectable he says with modesty and self-control. That's really what he's talking about when he says respectable apparel. Now, when Paul then says, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, uh, some commentators say that when he talks about braided hair and gold and pearls, that uh, in, in sometimes back in, in, in the ancient world, that, that the women would actually put gold and things woven into their hair, like their hair was quite... You know, we think of people doing their hair, uh, this was really doing their hair. Uh, but the point isn't that you shouldn't do your hair and try to look uh, nice or presentable for church. The point is, the thing that the picture that's being painted here is one of excess. You know, church, church is not to be a fashion show where one comes to show off one's expensive clothing and jewelry. Uh, you know, in some sense, you could say that what Paul's saying here is, you know, if I can use the, the turn of, of a phrase here, you know, flaunting what you've got in either sense, whether materially or physically, flaunting what you've got is to be avoided, especially at church. That's that's his point. That is really the main thing that he's trying, uh, that he is saying here. And I think the basic idea uh, here in this text, I think, is is not so much that the that the ladies of our churches should dress like nuns, 
Uh, it's not that they should wear potato sacks to church. That's not the case. But that they should simply be careful not to dress in such a way as to contradict their profession of godliness in Jesus Christ. John Calvin uh, bluntly kind of notes this. This is the way John Calvin uh, explains the verse. He says, without doubt, the dress, the clothing, the dress of an, of an honorable and godly woman ought to be different from a harlot. There are marks of distinction that Paul here lays down, since if godliness should prove itself by good works, which it does, it should also be visible in chaste and becoming clothes, chaste and proper attire. So mothers and sisters in the faith, uh, young or old, what, what, do your, what does your clothing say about you? That is what Paul would have you ask yourself. Does it in any way, in any way contradict your profession of faith and your profession of godliness in Jesus Christ? The world, you know, I think it's, it's plain. You've probably found this out the hard way, many of you. The world is not going to applaud your modesty. The world mocks modesty at every turn. It mocks a Christian view of, of how you should dress and clothe yourselves. The world will not applaud it, will mock it, but God is pleased by it. And that is what we should be concerned with. But notice in verse 10, uh, the thing that Paul contrasts improper, you know, unrespectable attire with, he contrasts it with something that you might not have expected. You might have expected him to say, dress this way, which is implied, but he actually contrasts it with good works. With good works. There he writes in verse 10, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, and you might have expected him to say to, to describe the kind of clothing they should wear, but he says, with good works. Simply put, and this goes obviously for the men of the church as well as the ladies, uh, in some ways, uh, as believers in Jesus Christ, we should be far more concerned with how we live than with how we look. How we look doesn't, it's not that it doesn't matter. It's not that it doesn't matter, but we should be far more concerned with godliness than with how we live than with how we Look, look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Peter, I don't know if they looked at each other's papers, but Peter says something very, very similar here. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6. He says, likewise wives, he's talking about husbands and wives, likewise wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. He's talking about, you know, some in the first century and even today, now, some women had come to faith in Christ as adults. They were already married, had families, and their husbands weren't converted yet. So he's saying, here's, here's, you want, you want to see your husband converted? Not that it's an automatic thing. Here's how you go about doing it. He says, uh, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see what? Your respectful and pure conduct. It's a, the, the uh, apologetic of how you live. And he says, do not let your adorning, you know, w- the way you present yourself, do not let your adorning be external. And he uses some of the same words, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, sometimes that kind of a life uh, is it can be frightening. It, it can feel very risky. And Paul says, no, God, God knows what he's doing. 
and that this kind of a, of a, a way of comporting oneself is, and conducting oneself is pleasing to God. It's very precious in the sight of God. And so, you know, what he implies there when he says, when he calls it the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You know, in this life, uh, it's just a fact of life for most of us. Uh, I used to have a lot more hair than I do now. Uh, I used to not have to wear these. But in this life, beauty often fades. That's just the way it is. It's a fact of life and, and of age. But but the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, what does Paul call it? What does Peter call it there? It's imperishable. It never goes away. And it's always pleasing in God's sight. Remember, God looks upon the heart, not just the outward appearance like we like we so often tend to do. Proverbs 31, you all know that chapter, most of you, I'm sure. Uh, Proverbs 31, verse 30, the ver- it's the second to last verse in the entire book of Proverbs, it says this, Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You know, the writer of the Proverbs isn't saying that there's something bad about beauty. He's not saying that at all. He's just saying, so to speak, don't hang your hat on it. The thing that matters is fearing the Lord. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. John Stott, a great Bible commentator and, and theologian, who's now with the Lord, he writes this in his commentary. He says, The church should be a veritable beauty parlor because it encourages it, encourages its women members to adorn themselves with good deeds. Women need to remember that if nature has made them plain, grace can make them beautiful. And if nature has made them beautiful, good deeds can add to their beauty. Moreover, men can facilitate this process by recognizing and applauding in women the beauty of Christ-likeness. So, fathers and brothers and, and sons in the faith, uh, you know, if you are married, oh, I have to ask, uh, do you compliment your wife, not just on her outward beauty and appearance, but also, more importantly, on her godliness, on her good works in serving the Lord Jesus Christ? That should be our aim. You should compliment your wife, I should compliment my wife on, on her appearance, but also on her good deeds. That is what God would have us to look for and look uh, look to in all things. We should see things more and more as much as we can the way that God does. And, and young men, if you're not yet married, uh, what do you look for in a potential bride in the Lord? You have to marry in the Lord, of course. What do you look for in a potential uh, bride in Christ? What are you attracted to? Physical appearance, is physical attraction is fine. Those things, I think, have to have their place. But it must never be the most important thing. It must never be of first importance. One, the person has to be a believer in Christ, sincerely a believer in Christ. But you should be looking for a young woman who fears the Lord. That is the first and most important thing to look at and look for in a potential wife. And the same goes for, for the ladies. If you're looking for a husband, if you're thinking of that kind of thing, are you looking for a man who fears God? and will seek to do his will in all things, and love you according to the way Scripture tells us to do so. Now, Lord willing, uh, in a week or two, we are going to look at verses 11 through 15. I'm sure maybe some of you saw the text we were going to look at, and uh, we're we're wanting to see the uh, answers to some of the harder verses of Scripture in some ways. We will get to that, Lord willing. uh, But uh, we'll look at that on an upcoming Lord's Day. But, you know, those verses in the latter part of this chapter they really do fit well with what precedes the part that we're looking at this morning in our text, because as Calvin says, 
verses 11 through 15, uh, they deal with another kind of modesty, a different kind of modesty, not modesty in how one dresses, but modesty as far as how women ought to show, he says, a different kind of modesty that women are to show in the sacred assembly in the church. And that is regarding how and who is to teach and who is not to teach and have authority in the church. But all things in due time, we will look at that, Lord willing. Uh, that subject is of such importance in our day in the church for the proper ordering of, of God's church that I think it warrants spending more time than just part of a sermon on it. So we'll spend at least, I think, one Sunday upcoming on that particular part itself. But for the time being, uh, I, what I'd like to draw your attention to is to think about what we just talked about. Think about uh, the men lifting up holy hands in prayer. Think about not being quarrelsome and whatnot. Think about modesty in how we in how we dress, uh, especially with uh, with the ladies in the church. Think about how the little things like that that we might think of as very mundane and little. Think about how much those little things actually matter and can matter to God. God would not have put it in Scripture more than once, frankly, just in the passages we've seen this morning. He would not have put these things in his word for no reason. And so we should we should not take them lightly when God himself does, does not take those things lightly. The little things like how we relate to each other in the church, how we dress, those things can matter very much to God. They can affect for good or for ill our gathering for public worship. They can glorify or fail. We can glorify God or we can fail to glorify God in how we relate to one another and in how we dress. And he just keeps saying the same thing again. Those little, the things that we think of as so little, the little, sometimes the little things are the things that matter the most. If you think about uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, he says there, so whether you eat or drink, now he's talking about the Lord's Supper, but that also applies in general. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's talking about, you know, in in, in his case in Corinth, uh, the the pagan temples, and they would offer meat that had been sacrificed to idols, false gods. And so Paul says, you know, you might not think much of what you, the food on your table, even the food on your table, depending on on you know how it's approached, can glorify God or fail to glorify God. And so whether whether we eat, whether we drink how we dress, how we relate to one another, can glorify God or not. And we, our goal as believers in Christ should be to glorify God in all things, even if we, whether we eat or drink. It says, whatever you do, do all to what? The glory of God. Amen.